upon, you could fit a hundred thousand men in one room. Only one of them could have the same genetic makeup as you. You have found your father. Welcome, everyone. My name is Kapil Guy, and you're tuned in to the Finding Perspective podcast, where we share stories and get into deep conversation with the intent of educating our listeners to new insight, new ways of thinking, and of course, new perspectives. I have with me today a very special guest. I have a man named Ton Campbell. Ton is the author of the book Orphan 32. The book discusses Ton's journey of being transported from Vietnam to Canada during the Vietnam War of 1975 and then eventually going back to Vietnam over 30 years later to visit his his homeland and reuniting with family who he did not know existed. I don't want to give up too much of the story as I would like for a ton to share a story with us. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Ton. Thank you so much, Kapil. Great to be here and uh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, man, of course. So you know what? Why don't we just get into it? Why don't you kind of give the listeners a brief synopsis of the story? Well, at the end of 1975, there was the Vietnam War. It was coming to an end. Um, it was a one of the longest wars. It actually spanned it over three decades long. Now, stats say that more bombs were actually dropped during the Vietnam War than both world wars put together. So you can imagine like the devastation to the land and the people without much firepower. I mean, what was happening is all wars do, you know, a lot of devastation, a lot of destruction, and a lot of families being torn apart part. Now, with that, you know, you have a lot of children who are abandoned, um, you know, by parents. They just can't take care of them. Others are, you know, left because of their parents being killed, either in action or due to the war. But I was in an orphanage or placed into an orphanage just out of the capital of Saigon. And uh, I was separated from my, my, my parents, but I was put into an orphanage with my brothers. Now, I had two older brothers at the time. And so I was placed in there and we were being taken care of kind of like a boarding school situation because we were not being orphaned per se. Our parents were coming back to visit with us on the weekends. But what happened is during the Vietnam War, it escalated so much that they were serving in the army, they got so busy, they couldn't get back to visit their, their children. And so that was during the time that I was actually taken out of the orphanage. My brothers were left behind, and I was taken by American soldiers for this thing called Operation Baby Lift. Now, what this effort was is to take these children and bring them to a better life in America, in the UK, in the United States, and in Canada, Australia, And so I was transported from this outlying orphanage to Saigon, which was the capital. And so by the time I got to that orphanage, um, they lost track of family. So I was kind of lumped in with the orphans that were being sent out of the country. That's very interesting. Now, these stories that you're telling me of being transported, 
sorry, how old are you when this happened? So I was only just turning two at the at that time. I was born in 1973, and then this was coming towards the the middle of April, the beginning of April to the middle of April that we were starting to do the evacuations. One flight had already headed out to Canada, uh, to Montreal, um, and then this last evacuation effort was done by the Canadians, and this was going to be landing in Toronto. And who was in charge of this? Who was in, t- in charge of Operation Baby? Well, Lift? it's interesting because the people that, you know, were working over there was called Friends of the Children of Vietnam. They had put this call out to different nations and different governments. And so the governments were deciding whether or not they would be taking these children in. And the Canadian government said, yes, we will take these, these kids in. We'll find homes for them. But you have to make sure that there's no parents, there's no, you know, uh, custody battles that are going to take place, you have to prove that they are true orphans. So when the workers got over to to Vietnam, to Saigon, they landed, they got to the orphanage, the care workers were there like, okay, we know that you wanted like three to 500 children out because that's what, how many kids could have left. Uh, They said, we can only prove that about, you know, 50 or 60 of these kids are orphans. They don't have any tracing of family possible. And so they were really disappointed with the numbers, but they said, okay, we'll take whoever we can get. So they had to pile all the, compile all the papers and they had to get official documents so that they could take these children because you just can't take children out of their country. You have to have official government documentation. And so they assigned all these kids with the papers and then they were ready to go. Wow. (laughs) So you've been transported to, to Canada and also I mean, you're young. So every, you were young when this happened. Very, very young. You're an infant. So all, everything that's happening, how are you, how do you know how this happened in what order? Yeah, interesting because uh, I was adopted to a Canadian family, the Campbells. That's how I have the great Scottish last name, Campbell. And my, I had an older sister or adopted sister, Joan, and she was very curious about her little brother's adoption. And so she wrote a letter to Victoria Leach, who was the director of community and family services for the province of Ontario. And she says, I know you were in charge of this, this trip. Can you tell me a little bit about my brother's story? And Victoria wrote this beautiful three-page letter to my sister Joan, and I've had that ever since I was very young. So I knew the flight pattern that we flew from Saigon. We flew from uh, Saigon to Hong Kong in the back of a Hercules C-130 plane in banana boxes. We were actually in banana boxes, (laughs) strapped to the floor of the plane, and then we boarded a regular commercial flight, CP Air, from Hong Kong to Vancouver, and then we flew Air Canada from Vancouver to Toronto. Wow, <laughs> that is that's that's quite the travel, man. That's incredible. And you, you you spoke about your sister. You spoke about the Campbell family, and I wanted to go a little bit deeper into that. So I learned that you know prior to you joining the Campbell family, your adoptive adoptive parents they actually had already adopted two they children, had. two that's, children prior. That's, that's right. That's so right. What did it feel like? Because I know that a lot of the um, a lot of the children that they had adopted had come from different nationalities. Now, growing up, what did it feel like knowing that you had siblings that looked different from you? Yeah, yeah I, I guess when I was so young, 
uh, it, that was just the way life was. That was different from my brothers because they were adopted at an older age. They were adopted when they were like five or six or six and seven. So they had a sense of life kind of before they were adopted where I was like two. So this is just, I grew up and that's my sister. She's white. This is my brother. He's black. And this is my other brother. He's white. And you know what I mean? that That's just who they were. I knew because my sisters and my, my family has always told me about my flight from Vietnam and how I, you know, all that. So I knew I was from a different country, but that didn't matter to me. Family was who I lived with. These are my parents. These are my brothers and sisters. Right. You know, that's interesting because you just mentioned that um, some of your siblings were adopted later. Um, so I guess they did have some sort of, some sort of memories from prior to. That's right. Yeah. How do you think that was a different in perspective, your perspective and their perspective growing well, up? Well, I think what happens is that they were probably in uh, foster homes, right? So they've been kind of in different homes. They were, you know, not really settled. And so like the story goes that my brother was, Dave was adopted first. He was younger than my brother, Stan, who was adopted after him. And they have this sense of, you know, I mean, well, when are you going back to with your foster family? And my brother Stan says, oh, no, no, Dave, you know, I was adopted. So now I'm your brother as well. And so they're kind of like, are you staying? Are you going? And they kind of, once that adoption goes through, you have that sense of permanency. Whereas I didn't know whether, I, I had no sense of ever going. It was just, here I am and I'm here to stay. Right? So do you think on their end, they kind of like, kind of saw it as mm, maybe these aren't my real parents or definitely definitely yeah. and they had that and I think we all do that sense of finding our roots and who we are and why are we the way we are and I, I believe that they had tried to make connections with their birth family and were either unsuccessful or they were actually kind of turned away. Turned, yeah. And that's harsh to receive a, almost a second abandonment. I can imagine. Did you ever feel any racism growing up? Interesting. My, my family was pretty prominent in the community because of who my dad was. And so in general— And who was your dad? Like, what was My he? dad was a, a pastor okay. of uh, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Cambridge in Galt. And so, and he had his own kind of TV show and he was kind of known in that community. Uh, philanthropist, worked for World Vision. So hey, people had a very kind of high regard for him. And so that kind of filtered down to the family. Now on a one-to-one -one basis, or I guess when you're out in the community and you have a white mom with a black child and an Asian child with a, and a white child, you know what I mean? All in tow. I'm sure there were looks, right? That my mom didn't even, I didn't, you know, think this is just my mom, but I'm sure she had to feel some of those looks of like, are you babysitting these yeah. kids? Because it wasn't as regular as normal right, back right. then. Whereas now it's, it's oh, yeah, completely absolutely. normal. When we went to the Maritimes, where there is very little diversity, that's when we probably experienced the most, I, I hate to put it in the word racism, but ignorance. That's what my mom would tell me. It was just they didn't understand because we were different. Our family makeup was different than most of them, right? So once people kind of understood who we were, we were and got to know us, they didn't have a problem. 
it seems like it was, you were pretty fortunate in in regards to racism, whereas a lot of other people have had it pretty bad. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not like we were oppressed. It's, you know, you have the ignorance of people going, oh, you're Chinese, and they would make Chinese sounds. And I'm like, I was told I was Vietnamese. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. I don't even know what you're saying right now, right? And it happens to <laughs> yeah, you, right? Yeah. And you're a kid. And and so then they would do it again. I was like, oh, no, you're speaking Chinese. I'm Vietnamese. And they're like, oh, that's cool. And I get to tell them my story. And they're like, that's crazy. And we actually become friends because they're so interested in my story. Yeah. Right? So I became, you know, I turned the situation around. Yeah. Um, well, that's it's interesting. Do you think that if your dad wasn't a prominent figure in the community that perhaps people's... Um, reception to you would have been a little different? I'm not sure because once we got to the Maritimes, it's such a, it was a bigger city, right? And no one knew who my dad was there, just the people that were in our church. So when I went to the school, it was like, they had no idea who our family was. I was just Ton, right? And I was kind of on my own. So I think it was just how I was, I was taught how to handle situations to, you know, turn a bad into a good, you know what I mean? And just deal with people's ignorance by education and then befriend them and show them, right. I'm not someone to be feared or to be, you know what I mean? Now you get the other people who kind of have their, whatever you call a chip on their shoulder. Well, you just, you walk away, right? You, right, don't, right? you don't have to choose, you choose to relate with them or not to relate with them. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't grown up in a, in, in a place of war, but I imagine that, you know, there was, a lot of children that were dealing with malnourishment or um, several other diseases as well. Were there any health issues that, that you felt that you dealt with as a, as a child um, or had some knowledge of, or perhaps that you still have to deal with till this day? Yeah, absolutely. So because of the malnourishment in Vietnam and Saigon at the time, you know, we were told that they did the best they could, but they were very, let's say, rationed to like rice maybe some vegetables and tea. And that was just, that's what they did to fill our stomachs. But we came very malnourished children. Like like the kids you see on World Vision. You see on those commercials, I was one of those children. You know what I mean? And so what, when you are not getting the nutrients that you need, you know, you have bad teeth, you have bad immune system, you have, you know, all of these kind of, um, you're kind of behind the eight ball and all of these things. When I first came, you know, ear infections, uh, dental issues, all of that, right up till teenagers, right? And still till today, you know, I have diminished hearing. Um, I still have kind of gastrointestinal issues, but you live with it. It's just who you are. It's not like, it was life ending or life altering. It's just something that you work through and you, and you, you know, now there are some children who were affected a lot more severely because they had things like malaria or polio, which is more of a lifelong, you know, crippling effect. Yeah. That's, I mean, we don't think about that when we think about war, we just think of, you know, people killing each other, but we don't think about the long-term effects that it has on the oh, uh, on the community yeah, absolutely and and the thing is you know in in war times uh resources are so scarce that people just do what they need to do to get by and to survive and i don't think we understand for the most part in the western world you know in north america 
we feel we're deprived if we have to go without our car for a day because it's getting <laughs> oil changed or and we yeah. have to take a bus or something like that. We don't really truly understand what it is to live on minimal just to get to tomorrow. So just, you know, looking into your life when you're growing up, you're in, I think it was New Brunswick where you were. That's right. So came went from Cambridge, Ontario out to New Brunswick, to Moncton, New Brunswick. And then for high school, we moved up to a small little town called Woodstock, New Brunswick. So you're growing up in, in New Brunswick. You're a teenager at this time. Uh, you're starting to kind of, you know, learn more about yourself, experience your identity. Did you at any point feel like, you know, feel like you were suffering from an identity crisis? I think when it was really interesting, I was about 13 or 14 years old. And I brought these birth certificates, these documents I was kind of probably doing a, a school project and I was sharing my story. I'm kind of like what I call the show and tell king. And so I was delving a little bit deeper into my story. And so I was looking at the map and I was going through that. And um, I'm going like, okay, I had to look at where the the town was, where I was born, where it said on my my, my birth certificate and where Saigon was. And I knew where I knew I flew out of Saigon because that's where the orphanage was. So I'm like, how did I get from this town to this town when I was two years old? And that's when my mom told me, she says, so, oh, you know, you're old enough to know that these aren't really your birth certificates. These are just papers that were officially signed to you by the government to expedite your processing to get you out of the country. But we were told that you're an orphan, that you didn't have parents, that these weren't your papers. And so like, I grew up known as Ton. And now my parents are telling me my name's not Ton. And so that really throws you for a loop going, and who am I? You know what I mean, kind of identify that way. And so then it's like, well, if I'm not this person that this paper says who I like, that just really threw me for a loop. So I wrestled with that. But then I started kind of going, okay, a paper doesn't tell me who I am. I tell myself who I am. I determine who I am. What do I like? I like track and field. I like tennis. I like dancing. I like break dancing. I like this rap music. I like, that's who I am, right? And that's who I, how I'm going to define myself, not by a piece of paper, not by a story that I'm told. I get to choose, I, you know, almost like I get the pen and I get to write my own story and I get to define who I am. And that's how I took it when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. And growing into that understanding, you know, where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? And that, and it sounds mature at that time, but I did this in a kind of a teenage way. And as you grow older and you come into an adulthood, you're learning more about, you know, yeah, defining who you are, right? Purpose. I mean, I could only imagine if like, if, you know, if some, one day someone says to me, Kapil, your name is actually not Kapil. You're actually, you could be someone else. You could actually be Timothy. You know, I would, I would go into shock and I would have some serious trust issues with everyone around me. I think I didn't have that as to the extreme that I could have because of the the family that I had. Like my mom loved me for who I was, not for a name on a paper, right? Whether my name was Frank, whether my name was James, whether my name was Ton, it didn't matter what my name was. She loved me and I belonged to that family. And because I was secure in that, everything else didn't matter. And how, how old are you when you first started sharing your stories? 
Well, obviously through elementary school, you kind of share it because how is that guy who is black, your your brother, and how is that guy who's white, your brother as well, right? Your brothers, and you have the last name Campbell, and you're like, and so you have to share your story. Okay, well, I was born in Vietnam, and I was an orphan, and you know, and here's my picture, and you kind of tell your story all the time. So I got used to sharing it. Now, officially, kind of on stage, uh, I really didn't start sharing that until I was working for charities who worked with children overseas. And I would share my story because I want people to understand my heart for these kids because I was one of them. And now I want to work for these organizations, these agencies like World Vision or Kids Alive International because I want to be able to give back. I want to support these kids who are still living in these conditions. So I want to be, you know, kind of a full circle giving back. So you started sharing your story in, to bigger audiences, uh, to the organizations you worked with. Now, what happened when you started sharing your story and started getting, people started hearing about it? Well, it was interesting. What happened is I was kind of, this story unfolded the way it has because I was in Sarnia and I was sharing my story. Sarnia, like, for, for listeners who don't know, where is Sarnia? <laughs> Sarnia? Sarnia is about two, three hours away from here. It is on the border of the states, right near Windsor, Ontario. It's kind of Detroit, you know what I mean? Just kind of on that border. So it's pretty far away. Um, but I was down there sharing my story and I was working for an organization and kind of doing what I do. And I, I've shared my stories a lot. People come up to me afterwards, wonderful story. They're touched by it, beautiful story. But then they move on. Right. This couple comes up to me and says, Ton, amazing story. We actually think we know someone who is on the same plane as you. Well, I had ne I'd never had anybody think they know someone who is on that plane because I knew my story inside and out because of the letter I received from Victoria Leach. Your parents never even told you My that. parents didn't tell me, yeah. but I didn't have to. I had the letter, right? This, right? They basically, here, read your story. So when I hear someone saying they had a similar story, back in the late 70s, 78, 79, there was a, a mad rush of Vietnamese, a kind of a emigration of people out and they would, they left in boats and they were called the boat refugees because they would escape communism on these fishing boats and they just take the boat going wherever it was going to Thailand or wherever it was going. And then they would be put into these refugee camps and then eventually make their way to Canada. And a lot of churches and people sponsored these families to come to Canada. So I thought, okay, they're mixing up my unique story to this mass story of all these immigrants coming over on the boats. But you never know. I was always pleased to talk with people from Vietnam because I had no connection to my culture, no connection to my, my language. So I was always fascinated by people who came from my country because I would learn a little bit more about myself, you know, by, by talking with them. So I said, okay, here's my card. Whoever it is, they can give me a call whenever they want to. You know, I'm glad to talk with them. So that was on a Sunday. On the Friday, it took a week, I hear, I get a phone call and I hear this voice. Hi, my name is Trent Kilner. 
I live in Sarnia, Ontario, and I was on the same plane as you back in 1975. And like, never heard those words out of anybody's mouth before. I'm like, how do you know? Because there are very specific things. So he says, well, Victoria Leach and Helen Allen, they flew us out of Saigon. They flew from Saigon to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Vancouver, and then Vancouver to Toronto. And we ended up in Surrey Place Centre. Right? All the right names, all the right places. So I'm like, wow. Like 30 years later, connecting with this person who had shared the same journey in life, adopted to a Canadian family, you know, mixed races in his family as well, and kind of got me, understood my perspective on life. Not that there was a harsh perspective, but just growing up in a family saying, okay, I'm different than anybody else in this. I'm different in my school community. I'm different in the broader community. Now it's kind of like looking in the mirror with someone who shares that experience. Was that... What would that feel like? You know, your whole life you feel like my story is different, but now it's like, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah. So comforting in one sense, right? And a little bit disconcerting because now I'm not unique, <laughs> right? Now I'm not special per se, but it was it was still more comforting to go, I'm not alone. I'm not yes, alone in my yes. thoughts because we would share. Did you ha- did you ever think this or did you ever did you ever do this or did you and, and I would go yeah you know what I mean and, and we'd go back and forth and we would have these similar kind of connections and so that was nice because you can't have that with with everybody. So then it was like okay well we know that there was two people on the plane there was a lot more than that and so how do we connect? If, we, if it's possible that we connected, how do we connect with the others? So then we went to uh, the media and then we went to where Victoria actually worked, you know, the ministry, and we gave her name and we said, is there any chance you have contact with her? And they said, oh yeah, yeah, she doesn't work here anymore. She's retired, but we still have her contact. And we said, can you please give her a call? Tell her who's looking for her and would she be able to tell us a little bit more of the story? So they contacted her, contacted us and said, yes, she would love to meet you. She's always wondered what happened to her children. She'd like to meet you in her in her home in Toronto. So we contacted uh, Victoria and we actually had a chance to meet with her in her home in Toronto. And that was really neat because, you know, both of our families were there. Our parents were with us and we got to hear straight from Victoria what it was like. But before we went and visited her, we called the media and we said, how would you like a follow-up story to 1975? This is who we are. This is what happened. They remembered the story and they said, yes, tell us when and where. So they met us at Victoria's house and they had interviewed her. Once we got there, the Toronto Star journalist is going through these photos, right? And he's listening into the story, but all of a sudden he interrupts and he goes, Ton, I found you. And he holds up this black and white picture of this child. And my dad, Mr. Campbell, is in the room and he looks at the picture and goes, that's you, right? And so like, we could look through all these pictures and was trying, we're trying to find pictures of himself. You know what I mean? They didn't see any. So they decided to take this picture, this black and white photo. And on it, you know, is this, this picture of me and there's this little number 32. And we said, what's, what's this number about? 
And they said, oh, when you arrived in Toronto at Pearson International Airport, there's so many kids, so many volunteers that we would number you. And then the same volunteer would come to Surrey Place, would work with the same child. So there was an orphan 32 and there was a volunteer 32. And so that's, you know, that's kind of mm. the reason for the numbers. So, so was Victoria volunteer 32? No, Victoria was that director. She headed up the whole organization. I haven't met volunteer 32 yet, but uh, we did meet a lot of volunteers who worked at the Surrey place. And uh, we're really grateful to, because they were volunteers. They weren't paid. They were actually taking their time away from their families yeah. to work with these children coming to Canada. Do you have it in your plans to meet Volunteer 32? I don't know if it's possible because it's out there, right? And it would be really cool to someone say, oh, I remember working with number 32 or, you know what I mean? So I don't know if it's possible to know... There was a specific volunteer that worked with me. There's people who actually, you know, remember when we were on the plane on Air Canada, getting one of these children to hold. They were just regular passengers coming back from ski trips, right, in Whistler. They board their plane, and then all of a sudden they're given a child to hold on to all the way from Vancouver to Toronto. And they're remembering that, right? But they don't remember the specific child. They just remember they held a child. So probably the volunteers like remember helping a child. They don't even remember their name. The numbers weren't so significant to the volunteers, but they were for the orphans because there were a lot more volunteers than there were with children, right? And how does it make you feel to know that there's people like Victoria in the world that were, you know, putting their life at risk to go to Literally, Vietnam. they were. And to know, you know, it, it's humbling, really, to, to think that there is someone out there who risked their lives like the pilots, who risked their lives like, uh, you know, Helen Allen, Victoria Leach, and all these people, knowing they're flying into a war-torn country like Vietnam. And, and, and it's not just kind of hearsay or, you know, could have been. There was actually a plane headed to the United States that started this whole Operation Babylift. And it was a double-decker plane. It was a war plane called the Galaxy C-5. And it was shot out of the sky, right? Out of just very close to the airfield in Saigon. And when that plane crashed in the rice field just off of the, the tarmac of the, the, the Saigon airport, a hundred and like 54 children and care workers on that bottom deck, they, they perished in that crash, right? And so they knew any flight coming out of the, in or out of there could have been shot down, and yet they were willing to go in and get these kids. So you you connected with Trent, um, and you guys, I'm guessing, become became friends? We did, yeah. Immediately? Yeah. And we stayed, remained friends, yeah. So what did you guys do to connect with more people that won the flight? So we did a number of things. So we we did a lot of research of where kids were adopted. If the story back in 1975, if any families did kind of stories in the new local newspaper, like the Campbell family adopted this young, or, you know, so, so there was a family right here in Oakville, actually, had adopted the Simpsons. And, you know, so we would look those stories up. But then we also just looked it up general, like who was the pilot, who were the care workers. So we would get some of that. But then we would do news, you know, interviews. So Canada AM, CBC, Toronto Star, TVO, all of these. And as the word got out into the community, people started hearing the story and they started saying, hey, I was one of those kids or, you know, that was my cousin or this was my daughter. Or They would relate to it and they would contact us for via email. And so that's when we started piling like, 
started from five into 10 into 24 into 42. And we're like, okay, we're, we're getting a lot of these. So then we send out invitations and we do little meetings at, you know, pubs and different things. But then it was just too many of us to kind of meet. So it's like, why don't we do a big event in Oakville? And we got a whole conference center. And that's kind of the work I used to do with these charities anyways, is putting these events together. So we had about 250 people invited. And once I got out into the media that we were doing this event, even more people came out of the woodwork saying, hey, can I come? And they would, you know, I was the stewardess that flew from Vancouver to Toronto, or I flew the plane, or I was a volunteer at Surrey Place. And so anybody who was connected to this to this trip, we they were invited to to come out. And um, I did read somewhere that you, um, that you and Trent, to get some more attention to your movement, you guys went on something called Speaker's Corner? Yeah, Speaker's <laughs> Corner on City TV. That was a funny story because we had been kind of traipsing around Toronto. We'd been to the archives and we were trying to actually get on breakfast television. Trent's sister, Heather, had a connection with uh, City TV. So we went in and we said, you know, are they here? And they said, no, sorry, they're not here today, but you know, leave your name. So we're walking out the door and there's the kiosk. And he said, well, let's go into the kiosk. So we quickly kind of put a little sign together and we paid our toonie or whatever it was to pay. And the two of us go into this little, you know, photo booth and we do a really short clip saying, hey, my name's Tom, my name's Trent. We're looking for kids who are on this flight. Here's our email. It was really short. And we had people actually respond from that as well, which was kind of cool. Yeah, they don't have Speaker's Corner anymore. But no. um, I mean, I was pretty young when it was like, when it was a thing. Well, the crazy thing is I watched Speaker's Corner when I lived in New Brunswick. Oh, yeah. Right? I would watch that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm on there. That's so cool. <laughs> I mean, that definitely shows that it had quite the reach. Oh, absolutely. It had quite the reach and it oh, got yeah, people absolutely. out. So how many orphans or how many um, children from the flight did you guys gather all together? Well, at that time in 2006, we got up to about 44. We knew that a couple had passed away, uh, so they weren't able to actually make it to the, obviously to the reunion, but their families came in their stead and on their behalf. And then uh, we- So you had 40, like you've met 44, including yourself? Well, yes. And then because I've been touring and speaking, we're actually up to 51, I believe it is, out of the 57. Oh, wow. So we're very close. You guys are pretty, yeah. Yeah, wow. we're very close. Now our numbers are kind of going, as we're talking to more people, they were saying 60 kids showed up in Hong Kong, but then they left some kids behind in Hong Kong and some kids were left in BC. And we heard that 53 kids were landed in Toronto. So the numbers are all over the map kind of thing of actually how many were evacuated. But we know that there was probably about 53 who landed in Toronto. And some of those kids, they didn't go to Surrey Place. They actually went directly to... Toronto Sick Kids Hospital because they were so sick, they needed actually immediate, urgent medical care. The rest of the kids who were okay, they were put into Surrey Place. Uh, what was it like, like when you guys are like in a group of you know all these people that were once on a flight? What did that feel like? Like what were those conversations well, like? It, it it's like strangers meeting, and yet we have something in common that none of us remember. So we know that we have it in common, but majority of us are like, okay, we were told the stories when we were kids about this plane trip 
And now we actually hear the stories from the pilots and the doctors and nurses, but it's still kind of like third party a little bit. But some of the older, like on that plane, we had three month old all the way up to nine years old. And so the nine year olds, they remembered and they would say, yeah, we remembered like we're old enough to remember the takeoff. We remembered looking out the window and what it looked like. We remembered hearing the sounds of bullets oh my gosh. hitting the plane, right? Remember hearing the sound and the sight of bombs exploding outside the window. And we're like, we're mesmerized by this, right? Because obviously the younger kids like myself, two years old, the infants, we're all in the inside, the interior of the plane in these cardboard boxes, not seeing anything. Yeah, I mean, half of us aren't even old enough to even remember that experience. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get that. It's, it's interesting when you group all these people together and like you guys have so much in common yet, you know, some people have, their stories are different a little. Some people's stories align a lot. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I think also it was depending on the families that were adopted, you know, that many of the families, they didn't hide it from us. Let's just say you're adopted. This is your story. Other families like, no, now you're part of our family. The past is the past. This is the future. And so they didn't really, they didn't address it. What's interesting is you see all these these people, they were came from one place, you know, taking on a plane, going somewhere else, and everyone kind of disperses and go into their own their own way of life. Yeah, go on their own journey. Now you're all brought back together. Yes. So it's cool to see um, the perspectives that because that's what the show's about perspectives. Uh, it's cool to see the different perspectives that all of you guys had living in different families. Well, and that's just it because also not only the different families but the different levels of health, right? So there were some of the kids who were not as healthy. They didn't arrive as healthy as others. And were they still suffering from those health they issues? They were, okay. and they still are. They still are, okay. Right? And so the families that adopted them weren't really prepared with how sick these children were. And some of those children actually had to go back to foster families, right? And so they were bounced around a lot more than the kids who were put into adoptive families and stayed with their adoptive families. So very much different experiences, just that alone. How did you guys create a community and how did you guys actually stay friends outside of just the idea that you guys were on the same plane 30 well, years part ago? Of, part of it has been the frequency of communication, getting together. Now, obviously people are people. You guys still hang out? We do. Uh, I think there's pockets or groups that kind of hang out. So Trent and Leah and myself and a few others, we're very much connected on on Facebook. And, and social media really helps that way of keeping people connected, even if you live at a distance from each other. Others, you know what I mean? I think they just maybe where they are in life, connect with each other. Others, people just, the reunion was a reunion. And then that was it. They, they kind of lost contact. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, everyone as everyone's life is different. And some people might see value in it. Some people might not. Some people say, oh, well, I came on a plane. So did you. And now we're here. Or some people might think, oh my God, we were on the same plane together. Like, let's learn more. Yes. Yes. And I think there's distance is going to uh, factor for a lot of people. Some people are up north. Some people are out west. I think what really brings people together and keeps them together is just the commonality of values, commonality of lifestyle, all of that. Right. So, and then people are, people are busy. So yeah. you have their own families, they have their own children, they get busy with that. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's just 
Same thing with high school friends. Of course, of right? course. I mean, it's just natural that you're, you know, the ones you connect with and click with the most, you'll exactly. keep in contact. And the exactly. ones you don't, you don't. Uh, I feel that, you know, perhaps a lot of the uh, the orphans when they had reconnected, I mean, as adults, the ones that did find that sense of relatability with one another, I feel like they couldn't find that with someone else. Do you think that, did this ever, was this the beginning of any like romantic relationships with people? Interesting. So we had a committee kind of for this conference and uh, so we would meet regularly. Uh, at that time, I was already married, right? Uh, but a few of them were single. And uh, so there was my friends, Trent and Leah and Aisha and, um, and a number of people. A dating relationship started with these two, Trent and Leah, right? That kind of blossomed into something more down the road after the, uh, after the reunion. And so they actually started dating regularly eventually got engaged and now they're married and now they oh, have wow. three kids. So, That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that in itself is a beautiful story. It is a beautiful story. Yeah. Now you, you did say um, you were married at the time, but um, at any point did, I'm, I'm just curious, at any point did, did any part of you say like, you know, it'd be nice if my partner could relate to me on this level that at this deep level? Um, That's an interesting question. I wouldn't put that on her because I don't think, until I met Trent, that I would ever think that anybody could relate to what I've gone through or experienced. And it's not been terrible, right? Again, it's perspective. And it's that understanding of, I have birth family that I don't know who they are. I have parents who brought me up and raised me, uh, and I have their values and I share their kind of worldview and world perspective. That's my family. For someone who was born into a family, raised by the same parents, brought up with brothers and sisters who were all from the same, it's just a different perspective. It's like, can I relate with them? No, I can't. So why would I ask that of someone else? No, that's... For sure. So your, your your story continues to take some more uh, well, interesting turns. Absolutely. After the reunion, you know, to some extent, we all thought this would be the closest thing to kind of birth families that we'd meet because, you know, I mean, we live over here. We know that we have, quote, birth families over in Vietnam, but no way of connecting over there. But the story went literally global around the world made it back to Vietnam, got an email from a journalist in Saigon, now it's called Ho Chi Minh City, and said, okay, I'm reading this story in the Hamilton Spectator. How did the Hamilton, what? It was online. Yeah, well, right. Okay. And so I think she must have been just researching for herself, you know, Vietnamese orphans or whatever she was doing. She found it on the... The Hamilton Spectator. It could have been the Vancouver Sun. It could have been Toronto Star. It could have been any of the newspaper. But it was the Hamilton Spectator that she was kind of referring to when she contacted me. So I, you know, that's awesome. Gave her some more information. She wrote the story in, in Vietnamese uh, using my name, using my picture from the reunion. And then a couple of days later, she contacts me via email. Very excited. You know how people contact you and you know that they're really expressive. So they're saying there's a family that wants to contact you. Is that okay? You know, they read the story and they have a connection. So I said, sure thing. So then a couple of days from there, I had 
another email from a gentleman from Ho Chi Minh City saying, okay, we're looking for a brother that went missing back in 1975. And his name is, and he gave him birth name. My parents' names are, gave him their names. And we live in Saigon, now called Ho Chi Minh City. And we have the birth certificate of the child that went missing. So I was like, okay, well, I need more information than this, but this is sounding very familiar because I had memorized these names and they were the same names on my birth certificate. So then they actually sent me a photocopy, a scan of the birth certificate, and I look at mine and I look at the one that they sent me and it's identical. Like the Vietnamese version is identical. I don't read Vietnamese, so I don't know what it says. So I look at the translation. The translation says exactly the same thing in English, except for the birth date. So mine says August the 1st, 1973, which is the birthday that I celebrate. And theirs said May 1st, 1973. So that was only discrepancy. And so we're like, okay, there's a discrepancy. So I was told when I was younger that these are my papers, blah, 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 blah. Now here's someone saying they're connected to these papers. There's a little bit of a discrepancy. We got to prove something, right? So I said, what, how, how do we prove anything through this? And so a friend of mine in the Vietnamese community, you know, very wise, said, you know, the only way you could actually prove anything is if you did a paternity test. I'm like a paternity test, like Montel Williams. Or like, Maury. Yeah, or Maury. I'm not going on the show. And he said, uh, no, no, there are labs that will do tests for those shows. Yeah. But you don't have to go on the show. I said, okay, well, if you find a lab that's willing to do a test for us, I'd be glad to, to do that. You know what I right. mean? So he said, yep, absolutely. I'll, I'll find one. So he did a couple of these later. Ton, they'll come to your house in Hamilton. They'll do it there. So they do the cheek swab. And then we sent this kit over to this family over in Vietnam. And then about a month later, we get this letter in the mail and all these numbers. And it's like match, 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 match. And then at the bottom, it says probability of paternity equals 99.999%. Oh like, my God. And, and my, uh, my eyeballs almost fell out of my head. 99.999%. So I'm like, what, what is going on here? You know, it's just, just kind of redoing all that I had learned or, you know, that I thought I had learned about myself back when I was 14 years old. And so I get a phone call from the lab technician saying, Ton, I bet you want to know what that 99.999% means. I said, I think I know, but you got to tell me straight out what this means. And he says, Ton, if you could fit 100,000 men in one room, only one of them could have the same genetic makeup as you, you have found your father. Can you imagine hearing that <laughs> 32 years later? Yeah. And so I said, my father, I, I, I wasn't looking for him. And he goes, well, he found you. And so I was like, wow. Like, okay, so now these are my papers. My name is Ton. These are my parents. Like all of those answers like are coming. So we do a phone call, but we have to use a translator because I don't speak Vietnamese. I wasn't brought up in the culture. I don't even know, you know, how do you pronounce my name properly? I would always ask anybody who is from Vietnam, how do I say my name? How do how does T H A N H say, say they say Tan? 
Han. It's like, okay, no, I'm going to keep it Tan. You Can you speak mean? a little bit of Vietnamese no, now? No, I don't even speak still, it now. No? So we had to use a translator to recall and we say, you know, through translator, you know, thank you so much for doing the test. Thank you for responding to us. We've got good news. Test results came back. And they came back positive and your search for your son is ended. You know, he's sitting on the couch and he wants to talk to you. So I have to obviously speak English and then my translators, you know, I introduce myself, I introduce my family, my dad's in the room and then it's quiet, like nothing on the end of the, on the phone. And this is a long distance to Saigon, you know, from Hamilton. And then all of a sudden he starts talking and he starts talking and talking, talking, talking really fast. And my translator is like, stop, I have to like interpret all this. So he stops him. And then my translator turns to me, he says, Ton, your father wants you to know three things. Now, first of all, he wants you to know you were never abandoned, right? Immediately, he spoke to the questions of an orphan. Why was I taken? Why was I separated? All that. You were never abandoned. You were never meant to leave this country. It was a big mistake. Second of all, we love you very much. And third of all, we never gave up hope that we'd find you one day. So never gave up hope. We always knew we'd find you. And I'm so glad that we found you. So it's nice to meet you. You know what I mean? And it was oh just like, God. wow. That's crazy. Like, you know, you're, you, oh man, that story's insane. Like you're over here in Canada wondering all these years, like, why me? Why, why me? Well, and especially when I was 14 and that whole the issue with the birth certificate, like now I don't even know if it's my real name. Now I have no way of contacting and now anyone. Some, now some guy on the other side of the world claims exactly. that I don't even have a name to go with, yeah. right? No, it's insane because it's like, okay, you're, you're searching your entire life. You're thinking, okay, like where, where do I, where did I come from? What's happening on the other side of the world? And now you found out that on the other side of the world, there was a man who is your father who's been, been looking, looking, for you, looking, been looking for you all these years and hasn't never given stopped, up, never hasn't stopped, given up, that's, never gave up. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. So after realizing that your birth father was searching for you all of these years, did you, I mean, I'm not sure what your faith, what your faith is like, but did you ever feel like, did you ever have a feeling that there was this energy or this angel looking over you your entire life? Well, it, it, it's funny you say that because I was always kind of raised to believe things happen for a reason. And that things happen sometimes that aren't great, that positive, but there's always a purpose. There's always something good that can come from that. And, you know, really, I it's not because I wasn't happy in the Campbell family that I was kind of searching or I was thinking. And I wasn't even searching. Like, my brothers actually did the search for their birth moms and went through all the whole process of registering and all that. I, didn't, I never did any of that because I never thought it was possible for me to do that. But you always are kind of thinking and, and going, okay, there is come some type of void. There, there is that when you go to the doctor and— you know, you have the fifth ear infection. You're going, oh, is this common in your family? And you have to answer, oh, we don't know because we don't have any medical history. And so you kind of go, oh, I really wish I knew why I am the way I am, why I do the things I do. And there's no answer. So those are kind of the things that kind of spur you on to find your roots or find your background, your history. And so 
to have that kind of resolved, you know, in that one phone call on the phone, Trent was there and Leah was there when we did the phone call. He goes, Ton, you had all of the questions that every single orphan has running up and down their mind all day long answered in one phone call. And it's true, right? Why or was I taken? Who are my parents? What's my whole health history? All of that kind of, all those questions were answered. And so there is kind of that closure that can happen when, when that takes place. You, you, you mentioned closure, which is a, a great word. Do you feel like leading up to this moment, do you have any anxieties about this moment or any, maybe even did it bring up any past traumas? I mean, I know you were young when, when you were, when you'd come here and you didn't have any memories. I think one thing that it, I resolved in myself that I would still be who I was. I was still Ton that grew up in Cambridge. I was still the Ton who loved to bike with his friends in Moncton. I was still the Ton who loved to learn to break dance and teach other people to do to do those, you know, those moves. Uh, I was still the brother of Stan and, and Dave and Joan and Nancy. I was still that guy. What this did for me is meeting my family was kind of round out who I was. It just kind of completed maybe some of the rough edges and added to the uniqueness of who I was. And not that it's answered every single question because I never got to meet my mother, unfortunately, but it does resolve the question of was I left behind? Was I given up, right? And I wasn't, right? I wasn't, it was a tragedy that I was actually taken. It, it's like what you hear on the news when there's an Amber Alert, right? There was that, that franticness. There was that uh, tragic aspect to it for my family that they didn't want their kid to be missing. They've been looking and looking and looking and searching high and low to know that there's someone out there who, who loved you that much, to, to go that mile, to keep looking, to have that perseverance, and to never lose the faith, never lose the hope that their, their dream wouldn't be fulfilled. So what happened after this conversation with your father, your biological father? So we knew we had to go over. We had to meet him. Right, we had to go meet in person, but to take a family of uh, how big ours is, we have four children, and we wanted my birth father to come. We don't speak Vietnamese, so we need a translator. We actually found two, nine of us to head. That's a lot of money, so we had to do fundraisers. So it took a little while, but it took a couple of years, and we were actually able to raise enough money. So in 2009, we were able to go back over and uh, you know meet my family for the first time and kind of get the the rest of the story. Who is my mother, right? Who are my brothers? Are they married? Do they have children? All those kind of things and really get, fill in the, fill in the blanks. So what was that experience like going to Vietnam? I really say surreal, right? Like when I'm flying in a commercial plane, you know, I'm an adult with four kids. I'm married. I have my dad with me. I'm flying into Saigon airport where I heard these stories about planes being shot out and all this kind of like, here I'm being flown in under peace, 
basically. That's surreal in itself. Like it's a whole different context. I'm not moving, flying into a war situation. It's like flying to New York or flying to Las Vegas or flying to Hawaii, right? You're flying in, but saying 30 years ago, I was leaving in a banana box. Like this can't be real. Then when you get out of the airport, and you're just like typical airport, you're going through immigration, you're going through security, all that kind of stuff. But then you go outside and that's where everybody's waiting for their, to, for their arrivals. That's when it's different. You know, that's when the culture kind of hits you. And then all of a sudden there's people standing off to the side and you can look this up on YouTube. Ton meets his father, right? There oh, they are. Video? There, you can see and you can see him with a sign, Ton Campbell, right? And I so have to search this up then. Then I go over and that's the first moment I get to meet my father. Oh my God, that right? has been crazy. And so then, you know, I give him a hug. I give him, I meet my brothers and it's surreal because here's this, you know, I'm not being director. Here's a six foot four <laughs> white guy. Yeah. That's my dad. That taught me how to play tennis, taught me how to play golf, who would joke around with me, all this, like who raised me. That's my dad. Here's this man I don't know, but who gave me life. Mm. Right? And you're trying to process this. And for him, you know, that must have been a lot going on at one time. So much. (laughs) That's been a lot. (laughs) Like, what's going on? He's now seeing his son that went missing, and he hasn't seen in 32 years. You know what I mean? It's such a different perspective than for him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you must have cried at that moment. I did not. You did not? No. You did, but he he must have. He did. You didn't. He did. I, I think I think for you, you're just like, you're probably still, you're, like you said, it was surreal. You're probably still soaking in the moment. Like, what is happening yeah. right now? Yeah. I landed Austin. in a country that apparently I came from many, many years ago. Yeah. I have no connection. Well, now I do have a connection with. I didn't feel, and now I'm, this is my family. It really my was. Brothers. Like, so what's I was happening? just going through. It was kind of like a dream state. Like I was watching like a movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was almost a third person watching it happen, yeah. and just kind of. Uh, maybe that's just who I am. I just kind of taking it in stride. But like, my wife was there. You know, my kids are watching, and they're seeing what everybody else sees. Right. So they're probably thinking, what is happening right now? Well, they, it's just this beautiful reunion of this father and son and this moment. And, and, and it, is, it was beautiful. Trust me. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not putting it down at all. It was a beautiful moment for me to hug my father and say the words, you know, Kong Tung Ba Lam, you know, I love you, daddy. That's what my translator taught me to say. And so to kind of have that moment with him. But it wasn't really till I had come back from that trip and I was sharing with this church group in Cambridge. Funny enough, I was kind of back home and I was sharing with this group and I was telling them the story. And I got to the point about talking about my father that in the emotion of that of, of this whole moment, like I was reliving it, but now third party, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I just started weeping for myself, for my dad, for this beautiful reunion. It, it hit me, not then, it happened almost a year later, right? That this beauty, the beauty of it, you know? And and now I experience what so many people, other people experience when I'm talking and I'm sharing my story, what they experienced. You know, my, my friend always says, you got to let things land. You know, you really got to let 
things land. And when they land, then it hits you. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to force it. Yeah. It's, you know, things aren't like when something, you have so much going on at one time, you're stimulated in so many ways. Like eventually when it finally creeps up on you, it'll, it'll, it'll come and, it'll, and you'll feel it. Um, but while you were in Vietnam, like that must've been interesting. Like, did that feel weird? Like you have brothers, your biological brothers yeah. who are like, you know, talking to you, your biological father. Your, did it feel weird? Like, okay, this is my biological family, but I haven't, I've never seen them before. That's did, right. Did Trying that feel to weird? build a connection. In what, like two weeks or something like with that? With language barrier, yeah. with the cultural barrier, right? Yeah. They've been thinking of me for 32 years, right? They've been thinking about their little brother that went missing for that long. Now, my other brother is younger than me, but, you know, he's been told about this brother that went missing. And, and you know, I mean, they have no idea thinking that they lived, he lived in the States or, and now here he is, where they kind of only came on the scene for me just a couple of years before that, right? I didn't even know I had family a couple of Years before that, but what was really interesting is my own family, my kids, right? So I had four kids. I have four kids. Sorry, and my my son asking me the question when we're driving to the the hotel the night that we arrived from the airport is Grandpa coming to the to hotel, and I'm like, yes, he flew all the way from Canada with us. He's going to stay at the same hotel with us. He goes, no, no, no. Our Vietnamese grandpa, right? Is Uncle Tao going to come and and stay with us too? And it's like, these kids already adopted this Vietnamese family, right? That they had never met before in instant, they were instant family, right? So that was really cool for me to watch is my kids interact with their cousins, with their uncles. Did they, did they find the story just like, like cool or was it just like, well, what what I found out is they, because we were homeschooling at the time, they were studying the Vietnam war in homeschooling. They were learning a little bit about my story. So they were kind of prepared to see it, but That's then for them to kind of watch it. Yeah. Do you think like, like your father, you know, was his, 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 his dream was to see you, but he sees you plus your family, plus your, plus your wife, plus yeah, your kids. The generations. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, Whoa, like yeah. this, you know, my. And beautiful moment was he, he thanks my dad. Oh, for raising me and for who I became, you know? Yeah, it was beautiful. That's amazing. How often do you keep in contact with your family in, in Vietnam? So I, I'm in pretty regular contact with my younger brother because he speaks English. And so we can communicate, house, family, everything. Unfortunately, my two older brothers have passed away. So in 2010, I had one of my brothers passed away. And just last year, 2018, I had another brother pass away. So it's just my younger brother and my younger half-brother. Now, my dad, my father, is still living in Saigon. Health is, you know, he's older. He's in his 80s. We don't have much contact. So it really is only through my younger brother that I kind of get the updates and that my father gets updates about me. So that's difficult because I would like to go back. I would like to reconnect. It's been 10 years. You know what I mean? 2009. Are you you making a plan to go back? I am planning to go back because we are working on some projects. I can't talk about too much right Right, now, but uh, we are going to need to go back and, uh, you know, do an interview with him uh, in person. And what we want to really do is kind of hear and delve deeper into his perspective of the story. You know what I mean? The moment that they got to that orphanage and they were told by the nun, uh, your son was taken by these soldiers. And he was, uh, we were told that they were brought to, they were evacuated to the United States. What was that like? 
you know, kind of asking the same kind of questions that you're asking of me, we want to ask him, what was that like? What was the journey of going into, you know, asking every orphanage, where did they go? Or when you were in a prisoner of war camp, what was it like? What were you thinking about? What spurred you on? What kept that hope alive for so long that you would actually one day actually get to meet your son? That's almost crazy, man. Have you, um, have you ever thought about turning Orphan 32 into a documentary or a film? Well, we, 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 we have already got a kind of a documentary out there. Uh, we were honored by a student from Ryerson who was a doctor documentary film uh, student. She was doing her, I believe, master's. Uh, so she took our story. She interviewed the pilots. Now it's all from, again, the kind of the Canadian or the, you know, North American perspective of the story. So that's why we want to do another kind of documentary about what was it like from their side of and the story. And that would be in Vietnamese? So yes. Okay. Oh, no, it'll be, in, it'll be in English. It'll be in English. It'll, okay. be, it'll be in English for sure. But we want to be able to, you know, obviously we'll need to have translators, um, but we want to film on location. So, I mean, you've definitely like had an interesting family life with everything that you've been through. What does family mean to you now? My life has been a roller coaster. Let's just let's just put it this way. You got your highs and you got your lows. When you grow up and you know you don't look like your brothers and sisters, you know that your family, quote, heritage was from Scotland, but you don't look the part. It's not that I don't have a strong sense of family. I do, but who is family? It's how and who treats you like family. And so I have some friends that I grew up in, you know, Moncton. I have friends who I grew up with in Woodstock who are like my best friends. You can pick up where you left. And I have people here now in Hamilton. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your, your status in life. You're just who you are, Right. That's family to me, right? It's the people who will take you as you are, who will relate with you in your highs and in your lows. Our immediate family, the Campbell family, were pretty spread across Canada, one in BC, some in the Maritimes, all around Ontario. So we're, we're family, but I can't say we're a tight-knit family. And yet people that I relate with on a daily basis through, you know, social media or through, you know, just being in proximity to each other. It's kind of like I've adopted them and they've adopted me. Right. Right. So I have an extended, larger extended family. Uh, That's very beautifully said, man. Uh, Yeah. I have a friend who uh, her and I were having like this heated discussion the other day, uh, something about this saying, she was saying to me, no, you're, I don't believe family is always biological. No. And I, I, I was, I just kept saying like, you know, my biological family, the way that I grew up and knowing how fortunate I am to, to grow up in a two parent household and with my siblings and all of us looking out for one another, I said, well, I kind of give them passes. Like they can get away with saying things to me that other people can't. Right. You know, if my friends say something and I'm angry and it, you know, it could even make or break the friendship, but with family, it's like, it might be a wound, but it'll recover and it's family. Like I kind of, you know, you kind of sure. let it, let it, let it be. Um, so it's it's really interesting to see this from your perspective. When you know and you're secure in that relationship, and a friend tells you something, and you know it's because they care for you, 
right? It may be hard to hear, but it's kind of like tough love, right? right? That's what family does. Family kind of, they do tough love. And sometimes friends have to kind of do that for you because they care for you, right? If they're not fair weather friends, they're long-term friends. And so for them, they're family. Not to say that my biological family that I lived in Vietnam, always looked for me, are less in family, but that's what it is. It's biological. Biological, right? yeah. yeah. It's, um, the reason I started this show, it, this, this podcast, is, is to hear those perspectives, is to hear different people's perspectives because we grew up differently. We all have different stories, and I feel like the more I can learn about you, the more you can learn about me, the more our listeners can learn about all of us, the more we can be better off. Absolutely. Like what I've learned in like recent history, you know, people who invite you, you don't have family approximately. They invite you to Thanksgiving dinner to join. You know, they invite you to Christmas dinner. They invite you to their family things. And your spot at the table is just as important as someone who, quote, is part of the family. That is so much more meaningful to me than being invited because, quote, you have to invite that person because Correct, they're family. Yes, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. That, that happens. I mean, They want you there because they want you there. Right, you right. Know, or you're there because they want you there rather than you're there by default because you're there by blood. You know what I mean? You know what? Like, I, I'm not a winter guy. I hate winter. <laughs> but, like, that's the beautiful part about the holidays is, it, it, you know, even if we come together for a day, two days, whatever. It's sharing moments, sharing experiences, yeah. right? So Trent and Leah aren't blood family to me, but they're family, right? It's the experiences that we've had and the share and what we can talk to and we can we can talk to each other and we can share our good highs and we can share our lows right. with each other. So, I mean, your story is just remarkable in all sorts. It's... um. It's a story that I feel everyone needs to hear. Do you ever feel that there's a lot more to your identity than this story? And uh, would you like to start speaking on other things when you're at your speaking engagements other than the Orphan 32 story? I think uh, what's what's happened is that uh, this is a launching pad. Right. It's kind of a lead-in. When people hear the story and kind of what I've gone through, there it's kind of tilling the ground to hear more, right? Now, as I was talking about with you before, my story's not done. And my, my life has been a roller coaster. There's ups and there's downs. And there's still life lessons to be learned that I'm still learning. So I've not come to the end of certain things that I have kind of say, I've learned it all. So I want to make sure that I'm not speaking on things that I haven't really become an expert in or can really speak to. But I think there are things like becoming a public speaker or publishing a book or things that I can help people because I've walked that mile that I can help other kind of journey through that as well. So it is a lead in when I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, telling my story and people build trust and then they're willing to kind of hear the, the rest. Amazing. Um, so what's next? I mean, I know you wrote another book. Yes. Yeah, so I have a children's 
version of my memoir called Lost and Found, Orphan 32 Goes Home. So proud of it, not only because, you know, it's been published and that's out there, but because of the artwork by a very young student, Michaela Bianchin, um, who was in grade 12 when she did this. Um, she was diagnosed with CF, cystic fibrosis, at a very young age, and she has a beautiful work done. I'm proud to kind of really promote more her work than, than you know, just the book itself. So touring with that, but because I self-published, I have my own publishing company. Now I'm wanting to now share these other amazing stories like my friend Anthony Frisina, my friend Sam Ekinem, you know, these people who also have life experiences that I believe other people can learn from. They've had bigger hurdles to overcome than I had, and yet they have remained persevering, hopeful, you know, inspirational, and they're not doing it to build their own kingdom, but they're really living to help others. And that's what I feel is most inspirational is when people have overcome through stuff and now they're turning that around to help other people. Beautiful. Um, so where, sorry, what is the name of this book? So this is Lost and Found, Orphan 32 Goes Home. My original memoir was called Orphan 32. Amazing. So, I mean, I'm really, I'm really excited for you, man. I'm really excited to see, you you. know, what's, what's next with you. I, I wish the, I, when did you come up with the, the children's version of the book? So that was uh, a few years ago. I had the idea because I was traveling around. I was speaking with my, uh, my memoir, uh, talking, and then I started speaking in schools. And so I was talking to a lot of kindergarten to grade 12 and, you know, I saw the older kids, they would be purchasing or teachers would be purchasing the memoir, but the kindergartens, it was too young for them. It wasn't, they weren't able to have a kind of a take home or takeaway. So I thought my daughter was at the time, probably in grade four or five. And I knew that she'd be getting to an age where she'd be doing what's called reading buddies in her school. So I thought, oh, it'd be really cool for my daughter to be able to read a book to her you know, kindergarten reading buddy, read this book and say, that's my dad. Yeah. Right. So it was kind of that kind of inspiration that said, Hey, it'd be really neat to put a children's version of this story, make it relatable to the younger kids. For anybody in this world who feels alone, uh, who feels like the world just doesn't understand them and just feels confused as you did at one point, what advice do you have for that individual? Well, first of all is you're not alone. Just know that there are people out there who care. Now, there may be people who have a different story than you, but they probably have a similar story for you. But they don't know if you don't tell. And so by sharing your story with other people, someone might go, I know how you feel. And I have that all the time when I'm sharing my story, it's not the same story. They came from Russia. They came from Yugoslavia. They came from Syria. And they'll share their perspective of how they got to Canada or what they've went through or their health issues or their, you know what I mean, struggle with this or even their victory in certain things. When you share your story, it opens up the door for then someone else to share their story with you. But if you don't share your story, the other person doesn't, have that, you haven't given that permission to share theirs, right? And so that's why I say be open. Be open with sharing your story. Second of all is, you know, when you're wrestling with your thoughts, when you're wrestling with that kind of 
No one understands me. No one gets me. To to write it out, right? To really go through and and kind of write through so that it's not just racing in your head. And then kind of look at it and then read it back to yourself and saying, am I, am I rational in this? Am I, am I being irrational in this? And then kind of pick through, pick your battles, basically. And, and then go through and go, if, if there is no one, you know, in your life, there are, there are people who are trained. There's counselors out there. And there are people who are wanting to work through, you know, frustrations. There are people who are trained with being able to do what's called reflective listening and let you hear yourself and then reflect back truths, reflect back lies, reflect back things that aren't lining up and then going, okay, I've bought into this. This may be true. If this is true, then what is my plan of action? Well, how do I overcome? And then it's being able to socialize with people who are, are not going to jump in that sand pet with you. You know what I mean? But the people who are going to be able to stay on solid ground give you a hand and then pull you up. The people who are able to encourage you, the people who are not just going to jump into that cesspool and say, oh, poor you, poor you, poor you. You're right. You you should be miserable about this. But kind of give you a, a better perspective. Yes. Beautiful way to end off with the word perspective. <laughs> so John, um, you know, like I said, it's amazing having you on the podcast. Oh, one thing I actually want to get to orphan 32. Where can we find this book online? Sure. So you can go to orphan 32.com. It is my webpage. There is a portal there for ordering both the books. So you can order via, uh, that, uh, you can go to Amazon it is an ebook right now or at any of my events. If you see Orphan 32 presentation by Tom Campbell, I will have books there. So what are you going to do that's above and beyond what you're doing now to help your community become the community that you want to live in? You know, it, you know there's a saying, be the change that you want to see in the world. Well, start doing that. Start thinking through, what's that little bit more that I could do to make someone else's life that much better. Amazing. Well, thank you, Ton. That was Ton Campbell, everybody. And this is the Perspectives Podcast. Thank you all. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Finding Perspective Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something new, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. To stay up to date with all things Finding Perspective, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Finding Perspective Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at underscore Kapil Guy. Hope you have a great week. Until next time.